Welcome to the Every Word Podcast. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Every Word Podcast. Thank you once again for tuning in. Uh, we've got a, a good episode here lined up for you. Lots of great material in Genesis chapter 29. I was actually really surprised uh, as I was studying for this how much is in here. And AJ uh, had, had a ton of material too. So mm-hmm. I have a feeling this is going to be a great episode. I'm really looking forward to it. So um, without further ado, I guess we'll go ahead and, and jump in. So Genesis chapter 29 um, we are reading from the New Living Translation, and uh, to start off, we're going to be in. Uh, we're going to be reading from verse one, and we're going to be reading through verse fourteen. So, starting in verse one, Genesis twenty-nine. Then Jacob hurried on, finally arriving in the land of the east. He saw a well in the distance. Three flocks of sheep and goats lay in an open field beside it, waiting to be watered. But a heavy stone covered the mouth of the well. It was the custom there to wait for all the flocks to arrive before removing the stone and watering the animals. After the stone would be placed over the mouth of the well, Jacob went over to the shepherds and asked, Where are you from, my friends? We are from Haran, they answered. Do you know a man there named Laban, the grandson of Nahor? He asked. Yes, we do, they replied. Is he doing well? Jacob asked. Yes, he's doing well, they answered. Look, here comes his daughter Rachel with the flock now. Jacob said, look, it's still broad daylight, too early to round up the animals. Why don't you water the sheep and the goats so that they can get back out to pasture? We can't water the animals until all the flocks have arrived, they replied. Then the shepherds move the stone from the mouth of the well and we water all the sheep and goats. Jacob was still talking with them when Rachel arrived with her father's flock, for she was a shepherd. And because Rachel was his cousin, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and because the sheep and goats belonged to his uncle Laban, Jacob went over to the well and moved the stone from its mouth and watered his uncle's flock. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and he wept aloud. He explained to Rachel that he was her cousin on her father's side, the son of her aunt, Rebekah. So Rachel quickly ran and told her father Laban. As soon as Laban heard that his nephew Jacob had arrived, he ran out to meet him. He embraced and kissed him and brought him home. When Jacob had told him his story, Laban exclaimed, You really are my own flesh and blood. All right. AJ, take it away. All right. Well, thanks, Ethan. Appreciate the uh, the reading there. So I'm going to go ahead and, as you said, I do have a lot on this, so I'm going to be as quick and concise as I can possibly be. But we pick up here in Genesis 29, seeing that Jacob has arrived at this Padan Aram, uh, though it really doesn't appear that he's entirely aware of where he's at based on the question that um, he asks in verse 4 of, you know, hey, where are you from? But for me, when I began to read this chapter, the situation with the rock over the well is what really Really caught my attention, so I wanted to dig deeper into this. So in verses 2 and 3, we see Jacob, he comes up on this well where there's three flocks of sheep and goat that are just kind of lying there hanging out, waiting to be refreshed from the well. However, we learn in verse 3, it's very customary that the stone not be lifted from the well until all the local flocks arrive. Now, later in verse 7, we see Jacob ask, Uh, why are the animals sitting here when it's still broad daylight long before they should be rounded up for the evening? And so, you know, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. I'll be honest with you. When I just kind of looked at it at face value, I'm like, you know, if you got 
flock sitting there needing to be watered. Why don't you just go ahead and water them so they can go back to doing what they were doing? So I studied this in various commentaries, and the reasoning for delaying the removal of the stone seems to be linked um, majorly to the fact that uh, this land is much like most of the land we've read about up to this point. It's very dry, it's very arid, and the rainfall is very limited. Um, therefore, the stone was kept over the well as much as possible to both ensure that there wasn't a certain party or shepherd that was, quote, overusing the well, and that there would be enough for uh, the flocks to go around. But more than that, it was mainly meant to kind of keep contamination down to a minimum. Because remember, this is a very dry, arid, sandy region. And the longer the well that remained opened, uh, the more likely it was to have sand blown into it. Animals could have crawled into it and died. Um, and assuming this was just kind of an exposed well, just kind of a, a literal hole in the ground, not the well you probably think of when you picture one in your head. Um, and when I say that, meaning basically a hole in the ground that just water is oozing out of. Um, not capping that well could lead to that water just kind of leaking out into the surrounding soil and sand going to waste. And here's the thing about a well, you don't know when it's going to run dry. You don't know when it's going to, the, the source is going to be depleted. So they wanted to save as much of that uh, as they possibly could. And while this does make sense in the terms of the natural, when I read this, it really didn't sit well with me, I'll be honest, in my spirit. Because here you've got these flock that are needing water. They need to be refreshed if you will, but yet they're having to sit, they're having to wait, and ultimately they're suffering in this hot and dry uh, weather because the people are too afraid maybe that the well might be damaged or poisoned if they opened it too often or What's even worse, potentially people might be too lazy to move the stone every time a flock needed to be watered. And see, when we're filled with the Holy Ghost, God has given us a well of everlasting life in our soul. We don't have to worry about if the source is ever going to be depleted. When we have that well of everlasting life in our soul, we don't have to worry about that because He is everlasting. He will never run dry. And while, yes, it's there to replenish us and to strengthen us in our spirit, God wants us to share that, share what we have with those around us, or in other words, the other flocks of the world. And what's more, we can't be too afraid to open our well in, in the spiritually dry and desert land that we live in today. Anytime we open our wells to this world, you know, we always open ourselves up to a chance of, you know, quote, being contaminated. And what I mean by that, there's always a chance somebody will try to come along and throw sand in your well or try to contaminate your well by some way, because that's just what the world is. This world is evil. It's full of uh, people being ruled by evil things. And, and, and they want to see the church of God. They want to see the people of God destroyed or beaten down. But see, here's the good news. God's well that he put in us, it's everlasting and it's always springing up and it's always being refreshed from him. So when I was thinking about this, you know, it made me think about, okay, have you ever had a glass in your kitchen sink and you've gotten your tap water running into it and it fills and it fills and it fills to the point that once that glass has reached its capacity, well, then all the water that you're putting into it, it's cycling through, but it's also pushing out what's already in there. So it's continuously overflowing. Now, 
take that example and try to put something in it, like try to put some food dye or try to put anything in there that if it were not being continually refilled would probably contaminate it. But because it's being continually added to what happens in this scenario, if you try to add something, it's going to be flushed out because it's being continually continually refreshed. So whatever goes in from this world is only going to get flushed out by his spirit because it is boiling up it is refreshing out of us and that's how his spirit works within us we can't be too afraid to open our wells up to this world because like the three flocks of goat and sheep there are people out there they're sitting they're waiting in a hot dry and a spiritually desert land desperately wanting a drink from a fountain that will never never run dry um, but the other that is so scary is maybe like the local shepherds uh, might have been maybe we are too quote lazy to open our wells and maybe we want to wait until we have quote enough people to listen to us before we uncap our wells and I just want to say I speak against that because what God has given us is worth sharing even if it's just for one person needing to hear and to receive it And the sad part is we live in a world full of churches with, quote, ministers that are more than happy to share what God has given them so long as it's prime time on a Sunday morning. But what what's one thing about or or what about the ones that aren't going to darken the doors of your local church? What about the ones that are spiritually maybe not strong enough to physically make it into the house of God? What about the ones that we randomly meet on the streets, you know, that we can tell just by looking at them that they've been beaten down by this world and they're looking for something or anything that will satisfy and truly nourish them? Am I going to sit on my hands and am I going to wait until, quote, all the flock arrives? I'll tell you one thing, that's what the devil wants us to do, because I got news for you. Everyone that needs to be refreshed from your well will never be in the same place at once. The great commission that Jesus gave to us, gave to his disciples in Matthew 28, it captures us perfectly. He calls on his disciples to go out into the nations and all the people, not wait for those nations to come to them because they were the source, so to speak. We are commissioned to bring what God has given us to the world, and we can't wait around for all the world to come to us in unison. We have to seize every single opportunity that God gives us. We have to seize those, and we must be willing to open our wells and nourish and satisfy the people of God. So going from that, I want to skip down uh, into verses 9 through 11, where we see Rachel, she enters into the picture for our very first time. So Rachel, she's a very different from the other matriarchs that we've seen up to this point in a couple of ways. Um, for one, she's really the only one that has seemed to have any form of technical employment or job being a shepherdess. And uh, from the sources that I was able to read from, she was really the only female shepherd of the Old Testament. Again, that is that's from my studies so um, I may be wrong and if I am please feel free to correct me but um, we will see in the events that will unfold in the next few chapters that Rachel is very much like Jacob in terms of how they both think and how they both plan to get the things that they want they're both bargainers and they are at times both deceivers but we will get we'll get to that more uh, in later episodes as we progress in further chapters so um, one thing I do want to see is you want to talk about is look at Jacob's reaction the moment that he sees Rachel. He basically leaves mid-conversation with this shepherd um, and immediately goes to uncover this well and water her flock. And a couple things I wanted to note here was 
one, this is almost a mirror image of what we saw with Rebecca and Abraham's servant in Haran back in Genesis 24, with an exception. Um, in that story, Rebecca watered the servant's caravan, but here we actually see Jacob watering uh, Rachel's flock. So it's a little bit of a role reversal um, here a couple of generations down the line. Um, another thing I found interesting is the Bible doesn't say that Rachel's flock was the last of the flocks to arrive or that the local shepherds had given permission for Jacob to uncover this well. He didn't wait around. He didn't ask permission. As soon as he saw that she was on her way and she had flock, he um, he saw that there was a need by somebody that he had at this moment had fallen in love with and he immediately jumped into action and I think this kind of further solidifies the comments that I made a little bit earlier about uh, you know uncovering our well every opportunity we get as Jacob realized this import the importance of nourishing Rachel's flock in that moment and not sitting around and continuing to wait for everybody to show up the last thing I wanted to point out there is uh, is for us to remember what Jacob's role was in Isaac's house you know he was a homebody that kept up the house and he, he cooked you know he, he wasn't the outdoorsman uh, so there's a chance that he wouldn't have had much experience watering a flock and yet it it he does it anyway because he saw a need he truly stepped kind of into a servant's role here uh, on behalf of Rachel so um now, in verses 11 through 12, they don't exactly specify uh, why exactly Jacob burst into tears uh, when he's after he's met Rachel. But given this context and the fact that this is probably the first good thing that's probably happened to him since he's been on the run from Esau, uh, he was probably overcome with joy at the fact God had allowed him to not only find his family, his, his mother's side of his family, um, but someone as lovely as Rachel as well, basically in his first encounter. Um, and then the last thing I want to note, verses 13 and 14, when we see Laban being told the story of Jacob coming into town and the circumstances of how they met, you see that he runs and meets Jacob and proclaims that you really are my flesh and blood. And we don't know for sure why he proclaims this or what part of the story convinced him. However, um, I'm sure Laban probably recalled and could remember and see the correlation between the way Rebecca and Abraham's servant met and how Jacob and Rachel met. And he may have put two and two together and took this maybe as a sign from the Lord that this man was in fact from the lineage in the house of Abraham. So uh, just kind of another little tidbit there, but that's all I have on those first 14 verses. So I'll go ahead and turn it over to you, brother Ethan. Man, great thoughts. You know, maybe the reason why he, he recognized that Jacob was his own flesh and blood was because uh, Rebecca, <laughs> his sister treated uh, Abraham's servant in that way. And, and she passed that character on, if you would, to Jacob. And so maybe that's the reason why I've really loved everything you said there about, um, watering the flock. Great thoughts. Just, I mean, amazing thoughts there. And you're absolutely right. We need to open up our well to whoever needs it. That's for sure. So, excellent thoughts. I will try to be brief here. So, uh, just kind of a recap of this passage. Jacob, right, he, he arrives in Haran. He meets his extended family. And he's there to find a wife from one of the daughters of his uncle Laban. And so, he finds this well with the heavy stone that she mentioned. Um, and so, as Jacob is speaking with the shepherds, Laban's daughter Rachel arrives with her flock. And though... The heavy stone required shepherds, plural, very important detail, to even budge that stone. Jacob shows off some strength 
and he's able to move it by himself. So Jacob introduces himself in quite the manly way. You know, this guy who's the, the cook, the not so manly person like Esau, you know, he, he introduces himself quite well. It's a pretty good introduction and uh, kisses and weeps over Rachel and, and Rachel gets her father Laban for the whole family to be uh, reunited. So uh, in Genesis chapter 24, in that episode, I mentioned that there's a lot of important men in the Bible uh, where they find their wives at the well. And so Jacob is not an, an exception here. And, and here he finds Rachel and, uh, and spoiler alert, he falls in love with her. Maybe that explains the kissing. Uh, and he, he ends up marrying her. Now, this is a little different from the previous woman at the well encounter, which is found in Genesis chapter 24. And, and in that chapter, you mention it, Abraham sends a representative. Not he doesn't, he doesn't send Isaac himself, but he, he sends a representative, a servant, to find a wife on behalf of his son Isaac. However, in this chapter, Jacob himself goes to the well and finds a wife. And I think this is a, an interesting difference. And, and uh, I think it, it made me think of how God interacted uh, with humanity through, throughout time and throughout history. So in the Old Covenant, God mainly communicated with the people through representatives or spokespersons. Uh, Moses comes to mind. The prophets come to mind. The judges, the priests, those all come to mind. And so God very rarely has direct encounters or directly speaks or, or fellowships with humanity. It's usually through a representative. But in the New Covenant, it is very different. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 tell us, and I'm reading from the Berean Study Bible translation here. It says, on many past occasions and in many different ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. So the son of God was obviously very different from the prophets of the Old Testament. And by the Son of God, I'm, I, I mean Jesus. <laughs> the prophets were ordinary men whom God appointed to be revealers of his word. You'd often hear them say words and phrases like this. Thus saith the Lord. And of course, I have to say it the King James style because it, they just <laughs> say it the best, right? Thus saith the Lord. Right. Sounds, sounds really important. You know, exactly. (laughs) So, you know, these prophets, they they weren't the Lord, they weren't God, but they were speaking on behalf of the Lord to his bride, the nation of Israel. But the son of God shows up on the scene and you will find that he never says, thus saith the Lord. Instead, this son of God repeatedly says to the people, I say to you. So this son of God is not just a prophet. He is much more. Hebrews 1 and 3, the next verse tells us that the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, upholding all things by his powerful word. So the son of God is the exact representation of God. If you want to look at God, 
Look at the Son of God. Indeed, the prophets all spoke of a time when Israel would see, would literally see God with their own eyes. The Son of God, the man Jesus, was that fulfillment of that prophecy. He was God incarnate. God didn't send a representative to speak to his bride like Abraham sent his servant. He sent himself to the well to find his bride. No wonder in John 4 did Jesus go to a Samaria to find that woman at the well and tell her, whoever drinks the water that I give, they will never thirst. The Samaritan woman actually hears Jesus' statement and, and says in John four nineteen, and she says, I perceive that, that, you're, that you, Jesus, you're a prophet. But Jesus says, no, no, I'm much more than that. And in verse 25, he tells her that he's much more. He says that he is Messiah. And so I'm thankful for all the prophets. And truly, like if I could, if I could just, if, if I could only keep one book of the Bible and everything else had to be <laughs> taken away from me, I would pick the book of, of Isaiah. I love the prophet Isaiah. But I am so thankful that God was in Christ reconciling myself to himself. So thank you, Lord, that when we look upon Jesus, we see the face of the Father. Thank you for not sending just a a representative of yourself, but sending yourself to find me at the well. So not only did he come to the well, (laughs) this is where I, you know, I said, remember the stone took multiple people to move, but you know, not only did he come to the well, but he made a way for us to drink from it. That stone he moved was our burden of sin, but he himself by himself was able to move it. And that, and that living water that Jesus provides, it waters our thirsty souls and thank God that he, he came and he did that for us. So that's all I have. Nice work, man. Nice comments as always. I love that about the connection about, you know, he didn't send a representative. He came himself to the well. So I think he did a beautiful job there. And even as you were wrapping up your thoughts there with Jacob being the one to remove the stone and not a team, you know, it how you are mirroring everything you know jesus rolled the stone away himself that took many men uh to encapsulate him you know during his burial so i mean there's such that's what that's one of the many things i love about the bible is there's such harmony in there you know and that's that's because god speaks in one voice that's that's who he is you know he is the same yesterday today and forever so the ones that wrote genesis you know even though they had when genesis was written um you know maybe maybe they didn't understand everything maybe they didn't see the entire picture but it all coalesces so beautifully because it's all about him so um but fantastic job um again so i'm going to go ahead and jump forward and jump us to our next reading so i'm going to pick up in uh, verse 15 i'll be reading down through verse 30 and i'll turn it back over to my friend brother ethan so beginning in verse 15 verse 15 says after jacob had stayed with laban for about a month laban said to him you shouldn't work for me without pay just because we are relatives tell me how much your wages should be now laban had two daughters the older daughter was named leah and the younger one was rachel there was no sparkle in leah's eyes But Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. Since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, I'll work for you for seven years if you'll give me Rachel, your younger daughter, as my wife. Agreed, Laban replied. I'd rather give her to you than to anyone else. Stay and work with me. So Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel, but his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but... 
to him but a few days. Finally, the time came for him to marry her. I have fulfilled my agreement, Jacob said to Laban. Now give me my wife so I can sleep with her. So Laban invited everyone in the neighborhood and prepared a wedding feast. But that night, when it was dark, Laban took Leah to Jacob, and he slept with her. Laban had given Leah a servant, Zilpah, to be her maid. But when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was Leah. What have you done to me? Jacob raged at Laban. I worked seven years for Rachel. Why have you tricked me? It's not our custom here to marry off a younger daughter ahead of the firstborn, Laban replied. But wait until the bridal week is over, then we'll give you Rachel too, provided you promise to work another seven years for me. So Jacob agreed to work seven more years. A week after Jacob had married Leah, Laban gave him Rachel too. Laban gave Rachel a servant, Bilhah, to be her maid. So Jacob slept with Rachel too, and he loved her much more than Leah. He then stayed and worked for Laban the additional seven years. All right, Brother Ethan, what do you have for us? All right, thanks, AJ. So Jacob here, he begins to work for Laban, and uh, Laban and Jacob agree that Jacob's wages should be the hand of Laban's daughter, Rachel. Now, Rachel, uh, she has another sister. Her name is Leah. Rachel's the younger of the two sisters, and uh, the Bible records that she was very beautiful. She had a beautiful face and a beautiful form, and you know everything that a guy wants, right? But Leah, she had no sparkle in her eyes, is how the NLT uh, says it. Now, <laughs> there's a lot of debate on what that actually means. So, uh, the the actual Hebrew, nobody is really sure what those words really mean. Most translations say that Leah's eyes were weak. Some say her eyes were beautiful. Uh, So you can see nobody knows exactly what this phrase in Hebrew means. The the Hebrew word used there um, to describe her eyes is rock, and it means weak, tender, soft, gentle, or delicate. So could this mean that Leah's eyes were weak so that she was nearsighted? Uh, Some actually think so. Um, But my personal interpretation is that this verse is contrasting the two sisters on two different levels. And and I'll explain. So Rachel's presentation is that she is beautiful, gorgeous, great to look at. But Leah is completely different from Rachel. She isn't beautiful. But in her eyes is a tenderness and a gentleness on the inside that her sister does not possess. Rachel may be beautiful to look upon, but her beauty is is just external. Leah may be unattractive on the outside, but her character and her tenderness of heart, her gentleness of heart that's expressed in her eyes far surpasses Rachel. So at the end of seven years, Laban gives Rachel to Jacob to be his wife. But, you know, it actually isn't Leah. It's Rachel. It's Leah. And so in the custom that time, the bride would be veiled. And so Jacob didn't didn't recognize her. And so in the morning after the wedding night, he realized that he had been tricked. And so Laban's excuse is that according to their custom, the older daughter had to be married off first. And so Laban then offers to give Rachel to Jacob if he will work for him another seven years. So you can see how that, you know, convenient custom came into play and how it worked out in Laban's favor. He just bought himself another seven years of, of cheap labor from Jacob. So in this passage, there are a couple of 
uh, of thematic rhymes, if you would, uh, in this story. So, first of all, the trickster is tricked. Jacob deceived his father Isaac, and now he's deceived by his uncle Laban. Some poetic irony right there. The second little rhyme of the, of the themes here is that there's the theme of the older and the younger siblings. So Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Laban has two daughters, Rachel and Leah. In the case of Isaac, the younger son, Jacob is the one who gets his father's blessing first. In the case of Laban, the older daughter, Leah, gets Jacob before Rachel. So just an interesting comparison there. Um, Another comparison for this situation, Isaac loved the one who received the second blessing, namely Esau. But in this chapter, Jacob loved his second wife, which was Rachel. So a very interesting comparison. And I think that the writer here is trying to to make a point here, uh, trying to make a comparison here, and and Jewish readers throughout the 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 centuries they've they've picked up on this comparison. So one Jewish interpretation, which just kind of uh, FYI, they call it a midrash, is what they call an interpretation, uh, went so far as to say that Rachel was the daughter that was meant to marry Jacob since they were both younger siblings and that Leah was meant for Esau. So interesting interpretation there. And so perhaps Laban thought that Esau wouldn't, wouldn't be suitable for Leah. He, maybe he heard about how Esau was. And so he decided to marry her off to Jacob. In fact, this interpretation, this midrash went so far as to interpret Leah's weak eyes as crying eyes because righteous Leah was crying in anticipation of her marriage to the foolish, unrighteous Esau. (laughs) So there are so many things that are up for interpretation in this chapter, and it makes things very interesting to dive into and hear, okay, what's your take on this? So... That's one of the. That's why why I love the Bible so much. It's like there's so many different ways of looking at this stuff. So, bottom line, uh, this passage is definitely meant to compare and contrast Rachel and Leah, and I believe that this is critical. Comparis, comparing Rachel's external beauty and Leah's internal beauty is critical to understanding the relationship here in this chapter, uh, later on in the next reading, and then also in in uh, uh, later chapters. So that's all I've got. I'll hand it over to you. All right. Well, great thoughts as always there, uh, Ethan. I, I really enjoyed what you what you had to say there, especially with um, the comparison, I think, between the beauties of each one of them, you know, kind of how their beauties, their beauties were displayed. You know, Rachel's was more exterior. Leah's was more interior. And the latter part of this chapter, and I think even the next chapter will, I think, go to more so confirm what you are kind of bringing out and better illustrate that. So um, nice job in, in picking that up, as well as like what you said, this chapter is incredibly open for interpretation as far as what what is your take, what is your because because I'll be honest with you, I've got notes um, along the same lines as yours, but they're a little bit different because I kind of went with one interpretation, uh, whereas you went with another one. So I'll um, not to say that it's any more right or wrong than than the other ones, um, but it's just 
that's that much more that we can dig out of this chapter. So that's like you said, that's one of the reasons I love the Bible is because it, it is so, so wonderful. It's so full um, of things that we can glean from it. So um, I will, I will try to go through this as quickly as I can. Now, um, picking up in verses four through 14 through 18, um, we see that Jacob, you know, hey, he's been with Laban now for about a month and he's really wanting to marry Rachel. But remember, um, we've made a lot of comparisons to Abraham and, and uh, or excuse me, Abraham's servant and Rebecca. Um, see, when the servant came, he had like 10 camels with gifts. I mean, he had the whole shebang. He had this huge dowry, essentially, to come and, quote, purchase uh, Rebecca to, to be the wife of Isaac. But it's a little bit different now with Jacob, because when Jacob goes, he really doesn't have anything except blessing and the birthright. I mean, that's all he left his homeland with. He didn't come with any gifts or anything to bear. So, he had to essentially work to earn Rachel, if you will. Um, but we read in verse 18 that Jacob's so infatuated with her um, that time effectively just passes on um, as he agrees to work seven years uh, again to to earn the right to marry Rachel. So let's zero in. I want to zero in on verse 17 for a moment, which is where we first, as you pointed out, we first see Leah and we first learn something about her. Um, we know from the previous verse that she's the eldest daughter and the NLT says that, you know, there was no sparkle in her eyes. You talked about that. The KGV says that her eyes were tender. Um, and, and as you said, they're the Hebrew word. That's kind of where the confusion comes from because the Hebrew word can be so widely interpreted. Um, they, they really don't know exactly what was trying to be conveyed here for 100% certainty, but it is known that she is not as, quote, beautiful as Rachel, at least on the outside. Um, but you did, so the one that you mentioned that I kind of ran with a little bit was the potential for her soft eyes or dull eyes or, you know, no sparkle, whatever. Um, the, the one thing there was a potential for was it could have meant that she was potentially nearsighted or she had maybe some degree of visual impairment. Um, in today's world, that really wouldn't be seen as an issue. It, if this was the case again this is one of those if and maybes you know because we don't know the we we don't know the true intention here um but in today's world that's not going to be much of an issue because guess what we have contacts we have corrective lenses we we fixed this problem a long time ago um but remember this is thousands and thousands of years ago long before corrective lenses was ever even dreamed of um so and, and there was no real remedy for an impaired vision so something that we kind of interpret today as you know a mundane visual imperfection back then may have been seen as a serious disability because i'll be honest with you i take my contacts out ethan can testify if i take <laughs> my contacts out and i don't have my glasses on i will run into a wall just about <laughs> i am that blind so uh because i'm nearsighted i mean that's just how I am. Um, you know, but back in this time, that could have been a, a serious factor in maybe why Leah wasn't married off yet. And, you know, maybe a potential disability coupled with the fact that maybe she just on the outside may not have been the most beautiful person, um, you know, to the eyes, so to speak. Um you know, and you you pointed out the irony, and, and I thought I picked up on the same thing of, of what verse twenty five does. You know, it picks up on that irony of you know Jacob tricked his father, um, and, and you know tricked him in every way but the voice. You know, because his father was vision impaired, but now Jacob becomes tricked by somebody who 
by any account we may have may have had her own <laughs> visual impairment so you know just um, yeah it's just amazing how it all kind of circles uh, together now skipping down uh, to verses 21 through 25 we now see that Jacob has fulfilled his seven year commitment he's ready to be rewarded with Rachel as his wife but we see that Laban's got some different plans um, and we read that you know after the feast Laban led uh, Leah into Jacob and Jacob uh, either he was drunk from the party or he was so eager to be with his new wife um he failed you know and uh, as well as well as what you pointed out the veil um he he failed to recognize essentially that the one had it that had entered into his presence was not the one he had bargained for um but he does not realize this until it's too late and again like we were saying this draws some striking similarities back to what jacob and rebecca did to isaac and uh, genesis 27 you know isaac's eyes were dull due to age but jacob's eyes were dull because he was too busy trying to satisfy his own desires um, to realize that that person was not the person that he bargained for. So it's kind of, you know, poetic justice somewhat in a way. Um, Also, I pointed this out earlier, uh, you know, it it seems to be... um, very poignant that Jacob is fooled into sleeping with Leah um, because Jacob is too blind to see that it isn't Rachel. And, and that's kind of what I just got through saying. Um, and he, he's his outrage that that following morning, you know, we read that in the scripture where he realizes that he slept with Leah. It's very similar. When I read it, it was very similar in tone to Esau's outrage at finding out he had missed out on the blessing. But like his father Isaac, Jacob allowed his other senses to be basically overridden, and thus he really didn't think anything of it. And by the time he's realized it, it's already too late. Just like with Esau and Isaac, after that blessing had been conferred, there was no taking it back. The same way after this night, there was no undoing this. Leah was now Jacob's wife, whether he wanted her to be or not. Um, Down in verses 26 through 30, we see uh, Laban's response uh, to Jacob's outcry about Leah, and we also see what it takes for Jacob to eventually end up with who he wants, which is Rachel. In 26, we see that Laban, you know, he gives this excuse, you know, that it's a custom. Um, some scholars that, from what I read, believe that this could have actually been a legitimate custom of the area, um, and the blame kind of would have been shifted more so uh, on to Laban and Jacob, kind of would have been a split custody thing because Laban did not come forward with this when they originally agreed with for Rachel, but Jacob could also take some blame because he didn't check with the local customs before he entered into a marriage agreement. Um, but there are others that think that Laban was making this up kind of as an excuse to pawn off his eldest daughter, who otherwise didn't really have much in the way of wedding prospects. The truth, you know, what what is it really? We don't know. This is one of those open-ended questions. Um, But one thing I will get into more a little bit later is that this opens a door for Leah to become part of something that for somebody, again, assuming that this was an eye condition, maybe she had this vision impairment, for somebody in her condition would have been deemed as most likely to be impossible. So in verses 27 and 28, Jacob, he's so infatuated with Rachel at this point that he's, he's literally willing to negotiate with the man who literally just tricked him for seven more years of servitude in order to be with the one that he wants. I mean, I I don't have any more notes on that, but just when I was going back and kind of rereading it now, that, that is there, there's some, 
there's something so powerful in there that we're, we, we are willing to go back to somebody who just tricked us and enter into a new deal because we are so desperate to receive something that we think we want or that, that satisfies our flesh, you know, that, and that, and you could, you could spin that around to say, um, you know, how willing are we sometimes to, to go back to something that of this world that has hurt us, that maybe has, has damaged us. And we know we've been burned from it before but because we let the desires of our flesh just run rampant because we don't keep those things in check and we don't cause this outer man this flesh to die daily as God wants us to we go back to those things that continually trick us continually uh, put us into situations that we never wanted to be in but but we're we're constantly seeking after that that Rachel so to speak so um, just something I kind of picked up on when I was reading that there the last thing I wanted to note was the last two verses 29 and 30 it shows that you know a week after the wedding Laban gives Rachel to Jacob now one thing I picked up on and I don't have all the answers here was that Laban didn't he didn't throw another wedding feast for Rachel and Jacob you know he threw this big one for for uh, Laban and or not Laban for uh, Leah and Jacob he threw this big festival big shindig but he didn't do this when he gave Rachel to Jacob so it makes me kind of wonder from a ceremonial standpoint I guess were Rachel and Jacob ever seem to technically be married, I guess, by by ritualistic standpoint, given that there was no ceremony and, and the way that Jacob was given Rachel was very much in the same manner that we have seen in previous chapters when we read in Genesis, very similar in the manner that we have seen handmaidens be given to the patriarch. So I found that kind of interesting. Um, and specifically as well, we note in the in uh, verse 30, there's a line, the Bible says that he loved her, talking about Jacob loved her much more than Rachel. And, and I'll kind of leave that as a cliffhanger. I'll cover that more in our last few verses on this chapter. But but that's a very important line to, to, to think about as we go into these last few verses. So um, that being said, that's all I have uh, for that portion of the scripture. All right. Thanks, AJ. Definitely some just amazing echoes and comparisons that can be made here. And it all kind of hinges on what angle you, you, you look at it from. So, wow, just a, a really incredible chapter multi-dimensional <laughs> for yes, sure absolutely so all right well we'll uh finish up genesis chapter 29 here uh so we're going to start in, in verse 31 and read through the end of the chapter verse 31 when the lord saw that leah was unloved he enabled her to have children but rachel could not conceive so leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son she named him reuben for she said, the Lord has noticed my misery, and now my husband will love me. She soon became pregnant again and gave birth to another son. She named him Simeon, for she said, the Lord heard that I was unloved and has given me another son. Then she became pregnant a third time and gave birth to another son. He was named Levi, for she said, Surely this time my husband will feel affection for me, since I have given him three sons. Once again, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to another son. She named him Judah, for she said, Now I will praise the Lord. And then she stopped having children. All right, AJ, go ahead. All right. 
Thanks for the reading. Um, so in these last few verses, we see now that Jacob has both women at his disposal. Um, he, he begins to try to have children, which will eventually begin to form the 12 tribes of Israel that we'll read about um, in later chapters. But I want to start by taking a minute and kind of acknowledging poor Leah at this point. This poor woman has not only had a suitor come out of nowhere, desiring not her as the eldest, but her younger, more beautiful sister. Um, So that's kind of offense number one. From there, she's completely ignored by Jacob for the entire first seven years that he works for Laban. And even when her fortune seemed to be turning around into her favor and she's given to Jacob for marriage, the very first thing he does literally the morning after is complain because she wasn't Rachel. And on top of that, after Jacob receives Rachel, Leah is essentially invisible to Jacob. He he just does not see her because he is so infatuated with Rachel. And, you know, I got to thinking about that. How scary a thought that is for us in our lives. You know, have I ever been in a situation, maybe not necessarily romantically, where I was so dead set on getting something that I wanted, you know, or, or satisfying something uh, within me that there was someone that got caught up in the middle of my ambition and wound up getting thrown around, maybe got thrown around and got hurt all because I was too focused on what I wanted. So, you know, that that's one thing I thought about. And, and I think you could say here for Leah uh, up to this point. Now, Leah was virtually ignored by everyone um, with the exception of God. And we see this play out in verse 31 uh, because God shut up the womb of Rachel and opened the womb of Leah um, so that she would conceive children. This is kind of a recurring thing we've seen with the patriarchs is, you know, the at first the wombs are shut up, you know, and then they, they open. But in this case, you have these two wives and it's not it's not the one that, that Jacob is just so, quote, in love with. It's the one that he was first given, the one that he initially receives, the one that has has been so neglected during all this time that God has mercy on and allows for for her womb to be the one to be open and had God not allowed this Leah would have most likely just been cast aside and treated no better than a handmaiden. Um, And, you know, and the following verses show us just how much Leah wanted Jacob to love her because she obviously had some love for him, but more so she wanted just to be loved. She was tired of being rejected by the world and she was ready for someone to appreciate her for who she was. And, you know, I want to also say something about Rachel here as well. If you reread everything we've read in this chapter, you'll see that Jacob and Rachel's love, it's extremely one-sided, at least by the wording that we're seeing in this chapter. There have been multiple mentions of Jacob's vast love and devotion for Rachel, but there really hasn't been a word of the reciprocal. Recip- I can't say that word. The uh, Rachel's love for Jacob. We'll put it that way. Um but yeah, it, it has not it has not been reflected back to Jacob from Rachel uh, in really any form, shape, 
or fashion um, that we have seen in these scriptures to this point. And, you know, it kind of further solidifies the point that Jacob was so blinded by physical beauty and perfection, he was overlooking one that truly loved him, the one that he could have had for only seven years of labor. Yet he looked beyond that again because he was willing, he, he wanted to satisfy his flesh. He wanted to satisfy himself in that way. And, and he gave up another seven years of servitude for somebody who didn't even seem to reciprocate his love in the same fashion that Leah would have. Though Jacob failed initially to see Leah, God did not. Because of what he did, he took someone that really didn't have any hope and put her into position to give birth to some of the greatest people and tribes in the Bible. And I want to take a second to kind of take a closer look. These are not the the children that you see born of Leah in these last few verses. These are not all of the children that Leah will birth uh, on behalf of Jacob. These are just the first set. Um, So initially, she has four children uh, by Jacob. Um, The ones we read about in this chapter are Reuben, Simon, Levi, and Judah. Of these four, um, two of them really kind of stand out. And those two, at least for me, and I'm sure there are great things about the other ones, but the two that jump out to me are the tribes of, or the children, which will be the tribes of Levi and of Judah. So if you're not familiar, Levi um, and his the tribe that will be named after him, the tribe of Leah, Levi, will eventually consist of the priesthood of God during the Old Testament, during the Old Law. Um, they were the ones in charge of the temple of God, and they were God's ministers during the Old Law. This was a highly regarded position, and they held a very holy position. Um, and then you have the tribe, and you know, again, eventual tribe of Judah. Um, this is known to be the tribe of the kings. Some of the most notable kings of the Bible have been birthed out of the lineage that came from this tribe, including King David, King Solomon, but most importantly, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And that's right. The Messiah, the promised one, the one that was to save mankind from their sins, was not birthed from the one that was beautiful on the outside. It was birthed from the one that was supposedly unqualified for marriage. It was birthed by someone who had been overlooked and been passed up on every single occasion and had made, he, God made her the matriarch of the tribe that would bring forward the Son of Man, our everlasting Redeemer, the one who would die to save all mankind. That's how awesome our God is. And I wanted to wrap up my thoughts on this chapter by taking kind of a look uh, for a moment at, men- at Leah's mentality after every child that she bears in this chapter. So in the beginning with Reuben, her first child, she still has this hope that will call that that this will bearing children that will cause uh, Jacob to open his heart to her and begin to love her, but it doesn't. She sees that. And as she continues to bear, she continues to hold out this faith, you know, uh, that this time, maybe this time with this child, my husband will finally love me the way that he loves Rachel, my younger sister, but he does not. He never does. So the shift comes at the birth of Judah when Leah says, now I will praise the Lord. When we stop seeking satisfaction in the world and we stop doing everything that we're doing to please man and we decide that we're going to praise God regardless of what man thinks, 
That is when spiritual kings begin to be birthed into our lives. That's no coincidence that the tribe that bore the kings and ultimately bore Jesus Christ is the same one that when Leah gave birth to it, she made it. She had made up in her mind that if her husband was not going to love her, regardless, she was going to give all of her love to the one who had seen her all along the way, God Almighty. So with that being said, that's all the notes that I have for that passage of scripture. So I'll turn it back over to you, Brother Ethan. Oh, man. Great thoughts there, especially at the end. I've heard many sermons preached on you know, the progression of, of Leah's attention and finally ending in with that praise. Um, and you, you just said it so wonderfully, so, so beautifully there. So excellent job, as always. So it, although Leah was unloved by Jacob, the Bible says God loved Leah. And that statement right there could just preach right there. <laughs> Doesn't matter if anybody else loves you. God loves you. What what an amazing statement. But just for a few minutes, as we're wrapping up the podcast, I really want to dive into this thought. And um, I know you did a pretty good, you did a good job. I, I want just to explore it just a little deeper. So even though, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to get too graphic here, but even though Leah was being brought into the bedroom of Jacob, her husband. He was in his state of riding the fence between righteousness and godlessness, still hadn't made up his mind about God. And even though she was being brought into that bedroom, he still did not love her. You know, he was physically intimate with her, but his heart, was far away from her. Perhaps he even despised her. I mean, surely this was a horrendous thing for for Leah, whose tender and gentle spirit was beaten and bruised by her husband's lack of love and respect for her. You know, if I were to put myself in Leah's shoes, this, this had to be a living nightmare. And unfortunately, she's just one woman of many who find themselves in, in a situation like this. But like Leah, God remembers and he loves every single woman who has been unlucky enough to have a husband like this. As much as God loves his people and he loves the world in general, he has a special love for those who are helpless and weak. He is a defender of the defenseless and the comfort to the comfortless. He is pierced through the heart every time an innocent person is mistreated. He hates sin, not only because it is inherently evil, but because he feels the pain of the person who is sinned against. God is merciful even to the wicked, but he is merciful to the innocent too. He's not going to stand around forever while the innocent are tormented. He will eventually intervene in his mercy. You know, there's some people, they question why a loving God would condemn people to an eternal damnation. And and this is why, because he's merciful to the oppressed. 
If you are a Leah and you're listening to this, remember that God loves you and he will stand and he will fight for you. Trust in his timing and trust in his judgment. He will right all the wrongs committed against you. And as as amazing as God's mercy is toward Leah and how much he loves her and 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 how much compassion he has for her and her situation, I find it all the more wonderful and amazing that God here doesn't judge Jacob here, but he shows mercy to him. There's a verse in Isaiah, it's Isaiah 55 and 9. It tells us that God's ways are higher than our ways. And indeed, when you read the passage in context, and this is amazing, it was pointed out to me not too long ago, that statement about God's ways being higher than our ways is about God being compassionate and showing mercy to the evildoer. No doubt, Jacob was in the wrong here. You know, maybe his bitterness toward Laban was, he was funneling that and channeling that toward Leah. Still, there's no excuse for how he treated her. But even in his sin, God shows compassion toward him. How wonderful God's ways are in these verses. God shows his love toward Leah. He opens up her womb. He reveals himself to her. But he also shows his love to Jacob. He shows his love to the innocent and to the guilty, to the wounded and to the one who wounds. His ways are truly higher than our ways. Now, you've mentioned this, but Leah gives birth to four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And notice, like you said, the progression. Reuben means look a son because she was hoping that her husband would look and would love her, but he didn't. Simeon means the one who hears because she believed God heard her cry and gave her another son. And, and she hoped that this time Jacob would love her. You know, this is the Jacob who's, who's simply just being physically intimate with her, but not showing any sort of emotion toward her. She's hoping that she, that he's going to love her, but he doesn't. And so she conceives, brings forth Levi, which means feeling affection because Leah was had made up in her mind that this was going to be the time that Jacob would finally feel affection for her. But no affection came. And then finally, Leah gives birth to Judah and her attention shifts. You know, with her previous sons, she had hoped that Jacob would finally love her, finally stop just using her, but finally love and respect her. But she gives birth to Judah, and that name means praise. And she turned her hope from Jacob, her husband, and she turned that hope toward God, and she praised the Lord. You know, I've heard many messages preached on this passage, but after just taking a moment to consider the depths of Leah's misery, just think of how deep and how how deep those wounds were in her spirit, that tender spirit that was shown in her eyes. After you've considered that, think of how much more deep and powerful that praise was 
that she offered to the Lord. She was despised from the very moment that Jacob woke up and realized that she wasn't Rachel. She was mistreated and, and unloved night after night. She was detested by her husband and probably ignored by her sister year after year. And yet, after the, at, at the end of it all, Leah turns her eyes from the many wounds inflicted upon her. And instead of offering complaints, she offers praise. Truly, Leah had just tender and gentle eyes, for she was tender and gentle in spirit. And when her sensitive heart that was, heart that was battered and shattered realized how much God loved her, she lifted up a praise in spite of the rejection and pain. Whew, how righteous Leah was. Wow. Wow. If you're Jacob listening to this episode, please realize that God is being merciful to you and that he abhors injustice to the innocent. Do what Isaiah 55 and 6 says and said, and, and seek the Lord while he may be found. He delays his judgment and his mercy because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come and return to him in repentance. We, we, we can't delay don't delay because the Lord is merciful and he wants to extend his mercy for he is gentle and he's tender in heart and he's not willing that any should perish. And if you're a Leah listening to this episode, please realize that God does not ignore the helpless. He does not forget those who cannot defend themselves. God sees you. He hears your cries. And most importantly, he loves you with everlasting love. Maybe you're stuck in a broken marriage and wondering what to do. Please realize that God knows where you are at and that he hasn't forgotten you. But even in your pain and suffering and hurt and wounds, God is still asking you to forgive the offender and turn your attention and your heart from that person to the almighty God. Learn to be gentle and humble in heart like Leah, for the Lord won't refuse you. He too is gentle and humble in heart. Matthew eleven twenty eight and 30 tells us the heart of who God is. Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that's all I have. All right. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful job. That's so true. I mean, it, it really is. I mean, Leah was battered and beaten even though she did not she did not deserve it yet god not only had mercy on her but he had mercy on jacob and so we can take the remainder of this podcast to just kind of give you uh, the listeners an opportunity to reflect upon everything that you have received in this podcast and you know give god the glory for all that has been spoken i know that um this has been a very powerful episode in, in many regard. Um, there has been much gleaned from it. Um, so I encourage you to take your time as this episode draws to a close. I encourage you to take your time to pray to God, speak to him and find him in, in these moments and find him and, and 
you know, like you said, if, if you are a Jacob listening to this episode, do not delay because God has had mercy upon your life for so long. Don't take it for granted any longer. You know, his, his mercy will come to an end. He will delay to a certain point. But then if you are Leah, I pray that this episode gives you heart. I pray it gives you joy. I pray it gives you a newfound uh, moment and opportunity to cry out the praise unto God, even in the depths of your despair, because this may be the opportunity when you cry it out, even from the depths of your despair, no matter how badly you have been beaten and mistreated by this world, it's when you cry out that praise and you usher up that praise unto his lips, unto his ears, that's when your life really begins to turn around and you begin to birth things into your life, into your spiritual lineage that are going to be beyond anything that you could ever comprehend. God is getting ready to do that for you in this very moment. So I pray that you take the time as we bring this episode to a close. We pray God's blessing upon each and every one of you. We pray that God's will be upon you and pray that you would be found in his will in all that you do. We love you all and we will see you the next time. Yes, in Jesus' name, you all have a great week. We'll see you next time.